Our Old Covenant reading for the evening is taken from the book of the Psalms, Psalm 110, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading the entire psalm this evening. The word of the Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the first letter of John, 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. We'll be reading through verse 12 this evening. The word of our God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's how John begins this chapter. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Not some, not boast, but everyone. That's really good news. That should bring us great comfort. Indeed, there's a world of comfort in that word, everyone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And therefore, it is absolutely certain to every single person who truly believes. Isn't the Lord good? I mean, the Lord not only makes salvation entirely his free gift, 
He makes receiving it so simple that we can understand that we have obtained it, that we have received it from his hands. Our Father in heaven wants us to know that we, in fact, are his daughters and his sons. He wants us to be assured of his love that we have in Jesus Christ. Every single person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And yet there's still a problem. It's a problem in John's day. That's why he's writing this letter. It's actually a problem that's become much worse throughout history. The problem is simply this. Salvation does not come to us through reciting the right formula. Salvation comes to us in the true person of Jesus Christ, the true Jesus of history. God, born in the flesh, the living God who, as a human being, lived the life that you and I should have lived and died the death that you and I should have died. Back then in the first century, and far more so today, there are counterfeit Christs. There are people who want to imagine a Messiah but they just spin out of their own minds. A Messiah who makes them feel comfortable. And then they imagine they can just slap the name Jesus on it and say, you know what? I believe in Jesus. I am a Christian, and I will claim these promises for myself. But a Jesus who is merely spun out of the figments of our own imagination will not save anyone. If you buy a cubic zirconia ring... Nothing wrong with that. That's what you're looking for. But if you buy a cubic zirconia ring for $10,000 because you believe it's a real diamond, it turns out that no matter how much you believe, no matter how sincere you are, the ring that you have is worth a lot less than what you paid for it. Frankly, getting taken like that is going to sting a little bit. But getting ripped off on a counterfeit diamond is nothing, it pales in comparison to placing your confidence in a counterfeit Christ. A counterfeit Christ who will not save anyone. Therefore, we need to make sure that we are trusting in the actual Jesus Christ who lived in this world and who was revealed to us in sacred scripture. And that's what tonight's passage is fundamentally about. In tonight's passage, John teaches us Three foundational truths of the Christian life. First, John gives us one of the central tests by which we can know that the Christ that we are believing in is the actual Christ, the Son of God, who brings about salvation for his people. Second, John reminds us that our Father in heaven wants each of his children to enjoy assurance but salvation is found in his Son, and that we are completely secure in him. Third, John makes clear that if we don't have the Son, we don't have the Father either. To make this easier to remember, we're going to walk through the passage under three very simple headings. Who we believe, why we believe, and so what. Uh, that's really simple. Who we believe, why we believe, and so what? I think we can keep that in our heads. John begins with who we believe in verse 6. Please look at verse 6 with me. 
This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. So what do we believe about Jesus? If we have embraced the apostolic faith, we believe that Jesus came by water and blood. Both. Not simply one. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. But what exactly does that mean? What is John getting at? We have to remind ourselves that John was writing to a church that was just racked by a serious schism. People have left this church body. They have left the apostolic faith. But you know when they left, they didn't say, you know what, this Christianity stuff, that's silly. What they did is they left and got their own group, separated from the apostolic church, but they said, we've actually arrived at a higher spiritual level. We are having deeper spiritual experiences. We have greater spiritual insights. Sure, we're still Christians, but we're Christians at a higher level. And they were tempting people from this group that John is writing to, this church, to leave that group and to come and join them in their Gnostic fantasy. Now, we have to realize that that temptation would have been very real for people. And in various ways, those temptations would be real for Christians today. After all, who doesn't want deeper spiritual experiences and higher spiritual truths? It's attractive. Let me add, this pattern has repeated itself with quite a few variations throughout church history. So here's a rather important truth to get, particularly to get across to our young people. Uh, You will face greater challenges in this life from people who abandon the Christian faith but continue to call themselves Christians than you will from those who openly acknowledge that they are not Christians at all. The reason for that is pretty obvious. The non-Christians in you, you have a black and white picture. But those who are claiming to be Christians and engaging in all manner of things that might be points of pressure in our culture, they're actually saying, you know, if you come over and be with us, you can still be a Christian, not abandoning the faith, but you no longer have to deal with the opposition you're getting at work or in school or from your friends about, like, you know, those sexual ethics that that church you were at was talking about or about your exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way. You know, in our church, people don't believe that. We're all Christians. That'll be tempting to a lot of young people, right? Christianity without a cross for us, often because it's a Christianity without a cross for Jesus. Um, that, That false sort of belief is very much a real danger. The enemies from within the church are a bigger challenge to us than the enemies from without. Now, I should hasten to add, we're not speaking here about the differences between Orthodox Presbyterians and Southern Baptists and Bible-believing Anglicans and Missouri Synod Lutherans and so on. Some of those differences might matter. But, but we're all within the family of God. We're talking about people who are abandoning Christianity for a counterfeit because they are abandoning the true Christ for a counterfeit Christ who is different than the Lord and Savior who has really lived. We'll say this as a pastor, but I'm sure you all join me in this. What a tragic thing it would be if some of the young people in our church 
were to leave an Orthodox Bible-believing church, not to go to a Missouri-centered church, you know, that would be fine, or to a Southern Baptist church, but to go into this sort of background where they're pretending to still be Christians when in fact they have abandoned the only Christ who can ever save anyone. They're going into an empty, powerless, and let me say it, evil religion. As the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Well, how do you safeguard yourself? How do you help other people that you love safeguard themselves from going into this disastrous error? Well, first and foremost, you ask about any group, any church, group claiming to be a church, what do they say about Jesus? Do they believe that he is truly God come in the flesh? Do they believe that he rose bodily from the dead? And as we are looking at in this evening's passage, do they teach that Jesus died as your substitute to satisfy the wrath of a holy God against your sin? I should say in the modern church in North America, there are widespread denominations that have simply washed this truth away, that, that we are objects of God's wrath by nature. In fact, you'll remember that when um, that wonderful song by Keith Getty and Stuart Townen came out, um, In Christ Alone, but a number of mainline denominations, including the Presbyterian Church in the USA, they wanted to put it in their hymnal. But they also wanted them to edit it, to take out the lines about Jesus satisfying the wrath of God, because they believe in a God without wrath, to use Niebuhr's famous expression, who's going to bring men without sin into a kingdom without the ministrations of a cross. But beloved, that's a false religion. Now, I am not saying that every person in those denominations is not a Christian. That is simply not true. But I am saying that's a warning sign when you have churches that are openly editing who Christ is to create a Messiah who is more comfortable for them. Second, the question we want to ask about any church is what do they say about and how do they treat the very word of God? If they treat the Bible as God speaking, the very words of God, which is what it is, then they're going to treat it as being absolutely authoritative in their lives. It's going to shape the way they think, the way they pray, the way they worship, and the way that they live throughout the week. Now, like us, they will be sinners, and they will not get it entirely right. But in principle, the church is going to say, Speak, Lord, for your people are listening. Now, the people who had separated themselves from the apostolic church that John is writing to failed both of these tests. They had abandoned the apostolic teaching. And in particular, they were denying that the Son of God was crucified for our sins and in our place. The particular heresy that they're dealing with, uh, most scholars believe, is 
Cerinthian Gnosticism. I agree with those scholars, so I'm going to be approaching it that way this evening. But if it varied a little bit from what we know about Cerinthian Gnosticism, uh, that isn't going to be very important to us in the 21st century. But here are two things that could be really helpful for you to know about this heresy. The Cerinthian Gnostics, first of all, believed that the Christ spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism. That is, they don't believe in an incarnate God, that God himself took to himself a true human nature. Rather, they believe that God sent a spirit upon an ordinarily human being, a biological descendant of Mary and Joseph, and the spirit comes upon Jesus at his baptism and departs from Jesus before Jesus is crucified. And second, they denied the full incarnation and substitutionary atonement precisely because they wanted God to have nothing to do with the suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross. By the way, interestingly enough, this has been picked up, and they didn't get it from Corinthian Gnosticism, but in Islam. You know, in Islam, um, they didn't want to have Jesus, who's a good man, a prophet, suffer judgment. So in Islam, they actually have the belief that Jesus had someone else substitute for him, that another man dies for Jesus on the cross. Do you see how they get that entirely backwards? They have someone dying for the good man, Jesus, whereas what God has actually done is taken the only truly good man, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners like you and me. So what do we do when we believe and embrace the truth that Jesus came by the water and by the blood? David Jackman writes, In what sense did Jesus come by water? Now, some people have said coming by water means your natural birth. And in some contexts, that can work. But as David Jackman points out, this cannot be a reference simply to his physical birth as a human being, since that matter was not under dispute. Much more likely and pertinent is that the beginning of the ministry of Jesus when his coming began, began to be widely revealed, when he was marked out by water in his baptism in the River Jordan. Not only was this the public beginning of his ministry, it was also a divine witness to his identity. The Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and the voice of God was heard affirming that this was his beloved Son with whom he was well pleased. It was a coming by water to take up the work which the Father had entrusted to him. Now, if you remember about Christ's baptism, at a fundamental level, Christ's baptism is about Jesus identifying with us. John was baptizing sinners who needed to repent. Jesus comes, as it were, to the waters from the other side, and he chooses to identify with us, the sinners, precisely so that his life will be reckoned to our account, as will his death, as our sins are reckoned to his. Although the false teachers would have put a different construction upon the event, that is, the event of baptism, seeing it as the moment at which the human Jesus received the divine spirit as a temporary endowment, they would have no difficulty in affirming 
but that Christ had come in or by water. But they would have missed the fact that the incarnate God was choosing to identify with us as sinners and to die in our place. By the way, this is still true today. You know, all those churches that have abandoned the fact that Jesus came and died in our substitute, they still practice baptism. They go through the ceremony, but they have vacated it of its meaning. Right? Um, yes, it's true that baptism talks about our regeneration, but the Holy Spirit does within us. But it very much is about God washing us clean. After all, it is. It's a washing, washing with water. And it's a washing in water that comes through judgment. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he teaches us this truth in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Right? The wages of sin is death. Jesus died for us, and our baptism is a way of symbolically and sacramentally identifying us with Christ in his death for our sins. If we remove cleansing through judgment from baptism, what we are left with is a religion of spirit without the cross. Let me say that again. If we remove cleansing through judgment from baptism, what we are left with is a religion of spirit without the cross. That is, what we're left with isn't worthy of being called Christianity at all. And yet, the steeples are still on the buildings, and people are still pretending. So John is at pains to stress that Jesus did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Blood's pointing to Christ's violent, life-giving death. The one who came whom Christians confessed to be the Son of God, was as fully and thoroughly the eternal Son, the Christ, at his death as he was at his baptism or at his birth. These Corinthian Gnostics want to say the Spirit, which is divine, comes upon the man Christ at his baptism and departs before his death. And John wants to make clear, no, hanging on the cross is the incarnate God. He is every bit as much God when his humanity dies as he was at his baptism. He was nothing less than God. He came by blood. The purpose of his coming explained in his baptism was fulfilled only in his sacrificial death. The same Son of God became the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and it is faith in him alone and in his completed work that brings eternal life, love for God and for his children, and victory over the world. This is what we believe. This is who in whom we believe. But why? Why do we believe these things? Yes, we celebrate them as the greatest news that has ever been told, but why do we believe this amazing good news? Good news, but is absolutely true. The answer is simple. Same answer, by the way, we had in adult Sunday school class today on an entirely different topic. We do so on the testimony of God himself. It is our Father's good pleasure 
that all of his children would know the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done. And it is our Father's good pleasure that all of his children would know that they will be secure in Christ's work and in his love forever. Look at the second half of verse 7 and also verse 8 with me. John writes, And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. You know, John, as it were, is saying to these these false teachers that have run away and started their own religion, so they think they're super spiritual. Why won't they listen to what the Spirit is saying? If you're going to be super spiritual, you have to believe the Spirit's own testimony. Regretfully, those who think they are super spiritual while contradicting the Word of God have been with us throughout history. They point to their own experiences rather than to God's testimony. I think of uh, Martin Luther's very famous line, um, his description of Thomas Munster, as someone who has swallowed the Holy Spirit feathers and all. But as Munster was always gushing off about all these experiences that he had from the Spirit, and Luther says, yes, but what has God said? Right? The Holy Spirit is the one who's inspired Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the one who presses home Scripture to our minds and hearts. The test of the Spirit's work isn't claims to special experiences or pretending that all the promptings of our own hearts are the leading of God. The test of whether we are spirit-filled or not is faith in the biblical Christ, and the fruit of the Spirit is a life of growing obedience and growing love for God and for his people. So John presses the matter upon all of us. Do we think that we are spiritual? If so, are we believing what the Spirit says? For the Holy Spirit is the one who testifies. Now, in this context, this must mean that the Spirit is the one who testifies to Jesus. And in particular, the Spirit is the one who testifies to our Savior's life-giving death and resurrection. Quite simply... We believe that Christ died for our sins because the Holy Spirit has testified that this is so. And the Holy Spirit speaks nothing but the truth. What if you notice, by the way, it's a very interesting phrase. We're so used to hearing Jesus say, I am the truth. But actually, we have a very similar line here. The Holy Spirit not simply speaks the truth, but is the truth. But how does the Holy Spirit do this? That is, how does the Holy Spirit testify to the truth? Well, actually, we can point to many things. There's a multifaceted aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry. But externally, the Holy Spirit testified to Christ during Christ's life by descending in the form of a dove on him at his baptism, by the numerous miracles that Christ did in the power of the Holy Spirit. John probably also has in mind Christ's encouragement to his disciples in John 15, 
Our Lord says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. If that's right, and I think it is, then Pentecost is exhibit A of the Holy Spirit testifying to Jesus. In a very dramatic way, the Holy Spirit rushes upon the disciples and rushes upon Jewish people and makes new converts. He, he, he applies the truth of Peter's message about Jesus to their hearts, and with unction, he opens up their hearts so that they believe this as it's the absolute truth. And what was the good news? The apostle Peter declared, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The very heart of the message, the Holy Spirit causes people to believe in this miraculous way is that Jesus died for our sins and God raised him from the dead. Not only vindicating Jesus, but vindicating all his people who were united with him. The Holy Spirit also gave the inward witness by convicting thousands of hearts to believe that these words were gloriously true. We'll say more about that in just a moment. What John is saying here is simple. You cannot pick and choose from the Spirit's work. You cannot separate the testimony of the Spirit to Christ at his baptism from the testimony of the Spirit at and to Christ's death. They unite together to form a single and unbreakable witness to who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Please mark this well in your thinking. The Holy Spirit did not only objectively testify to who Christ is during the days of Christ, the Holy Spirit continues to testify to who Christ is right now. That's what John says. Look at verses 7 and 8 again with me. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. See, John does not write there are three who testified, that testified, past tense. There are three that testify right now, that are testifying right now. Well, what exactly is John getting at? First, there is the ongoing testimony of the Spirit, which gives us assurance in two ways. The Holy Spirit testifies to us that the word which he inspired about Jesus is in fact completely true. This is commonly called unction. Now, unction is not God giving you your own personal private revelations. It's not new information. But what God does, God the Holy Spirit, is he takes the very words that he has inspired 
the authors to write, and he causes you in your heart and your mind to go, that is completely true. This is God speaking to me. The Holy Spirit does that as part of his testimony to the truth. As Martin Luther once put it, the Holy Spirit is no skeptic. And the things that he has written on our heart are more certain and sure than life itself. Beloved, the Holy Spirit is no skeptic. In addition to this objective testimony to the words of Scripture which he has inspired, the Holy Spirit also gives a personal testimony to the believer that we truly are God's children. I want to be a little hesitant here. We often talk about this as though it's subjective. But inspiring the Scripture is objective. Testifying to the Scripture is objective. And we start thinking about the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our hearts We start thinking about our experiences, and our experiences are subjective. But I want you to realize that God's testimony in this case is absolutely objective. The Spirit himself, as Paul writes in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Isn't that incredible? Second, the water bears witness. Now, I want you to see there's a shift here, and this is also true when we come to the blood. The water bears witness. Now, when Jesus was coming through the water, that refers to Jesus' baptism. But now John is shifting over as he's talking about witness, no longer talking about Jesus' baptism, but talking about your baptism. Your baptism is part of the way that God bears witness to the truth of who Jesus is, And what he has done. John is here talking about the baptism we received, whereby God puts his name upon us and identifies us with Jesus. This sacrament is a sign and a seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. It's intended to give us assurance that the promises of God are true. And as we look to Christ in faith, see here you can't separate assurance from your faith. But as you look to Christ in faith, your very own baptism is one of the means that God gives to grant you assurance that you belong to the Lord both now and forever. Third, the blood bears witness. We have the same shift here. Earlier on, we're talking about Jesus coming through the water and the blood. That's talking about Christ's violent death on the cross, his life-giving death on your behalf. But now John is shifting over to the witness of the Lord's Supper, which testifies to Christ's life-giving death. When John speaks of Jesus coming by the blood, he's referring to Christ's violent, life-giving death on the cross. But the ongoing witness, the testimony which is intended to bring us insurance, comes when we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's table. And once again, of course, that assurance only comes, even though it's through the objective means of the sacrament, to those who have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, right? Because it's an assurance for everyone who believes. The fact that John speaks of three witnesses is almost certainly an allusion back to Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, and the need to establish any important testimony by the word of two or three witnesses, right? And so he's 
piling them up, as it were. He's saying, here's three different avenues by which God himself is testifying to this truth that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh who died for our sins, a penal substitutionary death. Just a little reminder, God's not calling you to take a leap of faith into the dark. That is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is a step into the light based on solid evidences and God's own testimony. You know, though there are three distinct witnesses, they all function together and for the same purpose. As John puts it, these three agree, or in fact, we could even translate this, these three are one. They're all intended to bring about one truth, They're intended to be witnesses that point to who Jesus is and what he has done for us as his people. God's word, the sacraments, and the unction of the Holy Spirit all work together to assure us of God's revealed truth and to assure us who believe that we are the objects of God's gracious promises. Then John drives home this reality with a simple but powerful application. Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. What do we believe? We believe that Jesus came by the water and by the blood. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Why do we believe this? We believe this because God himself has testified that this is the truth. How odd. You say odd. Well, yeah, it is odd, but how evil it is that human beings would accept the testimony of other creatures who merely have their breath in their nostrils and then spurn the testimony of God himself. Rather than doing that, let us declare that God is true, even if that requires us to declare that all men are liars. When we take our stand with God, we will never have reason to be ashamed. Nevertheless, it's still worth asking, so what? What's the payoff here? What difference does it make that we believe this particular truth about what God has done in Jesus Christ? Please look at verse 10 with me. John writes, Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. See here, John returns to that second way in which the Holy Spirit provides a testimony to us with, with the, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, testifying to our spirits. This is when the Holy Spirit objectively declares the truth, whether through Christ's miracles at Pentecost or by inspiring the scriptures, and he drives that testimony home into our hearts 
so that we believe it as being absolutely God's word. It is because the Holy Spirit attends to the word of God that we become fully convinced that it is God himself speaking to us through his word. If you believe, then you have this testimony within you. I'm reminded, by the way, of a line from R.C. Sproul. It's kind of a throwaway line, but I think it's actually quite important. You might remember that R.C. Sproul spent a lot of time working on defending biblical inerrancy. In fact, when they created this council on biblical inerrancy that met in Chicago, R.C. Sproul was the one who wrote it all up in summary form so it could be distributed to people, a commentary on their statement. R.C. makes this point. He says, I never believe the word of God is the word of God more than when I'm reading it. See, see, those arguments are all good. They're useful. But actually, if you're a believer coming to the Bible and you're reading it, you have something better than that. The Holy Spirit himself will testify that this is his word, and he will apply it to your minds and hearts. Because it is God himself who is bearing witness to Christ's substitutionary death and victorious resurrection on behalf of his people, Unbelief is not merely an intellectual slip. Unbelief, according to the Bible, according to God, is to call God himself a liar. Now I'll say you'll encounter this throughout your life. That people go, well, I don't have enough faith in God. There's not enough evidence. And it turns out, of course, when you read Romans 1, that everybody does have enough evidence. God himself is making known to them his eternal power in Godhead, he ought to be worshipped. And then there's plenty of evidence in the scriptures about who Jesus is and the details of who God is and what he has done. You know, for someone to say, yeah, I don't have faith like you do, it's no big deal. It's a huge deal. You know, if you were to go uh, work for the United States government and routinely call the president of the United States a liar, and he is, he's a man, All men are liars. He's not someone that always tells the truth. You eventually would get in trouble for that. People would not respect that. And then we think what it means for people to stick their fist in the face of Almighty God and say, you haven't given me enough evidence to believe. What a horrible sin. Well, you probably don't want to tell people all that when you're witnessing to them. But I do want to encourage you. But another way that you could approach this with them is to point out how amazing it is that God would send anyone into this world, send his own son into this world, and provide any method of salvation for us as sinners. Right? People are going to get all caught up and see the only way. Well, they'll get that once they understand what God has done by sending his own son as the incarnate son of God into this world. But you should press that to them and then ask, don't you think you ought to take more seriously this issue? That you should not be taking it as a trivial matter that the living God has sent his own son into this world to provide salvation, as though that is a light thing, and he ought to provide another way for other people. For God is absolutely clear about the consequences of embracing or rejecting his testimony about who Jesus is 
and what he has done. This is the so what answer. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's abundantly clear. There's no ambiguity in what God is saying. So what do we believe? We believe that Jesus came by the water and by the blood. Not only by water, but by the water and the blood. Why do we believe this? We believe this because God, the Holy Spirit, has testified abundantly to this truth. Here's the rub. What difference does it make? Beloved, let me say it makes all the difference in the world. In fact, that's to understate the matter. Your eternity hangs on whether or not you embrace not just this truth, but the incarnate Son of God who is the truth. He who has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Anything and everything else you might think about today pales in comparison. I would like to say just one more thing this evening, though. Christ dying in the place of his people to satisfy the wrath of God and to put away all of your guilt is not only the clear teaching of Scripture. It is not only absolutely true, it is gloriously true. It is something that is worthy of our celebration. It is worth us pouring our hearts into with every fiber of our being. Beloved, man has sinned. God has paid the price. Who could possibly fathom that love? So yes, and without apology, we preach Christ and him crucified. And we also sing this truth with joyful and grateful hearts. As Keith Getty and Stuart Townend have so movingly put it, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here, in the death of Christ, I live. Amen.